It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you to make better financial decisions in your life. By the way, happy birthday to my brother, Neil. Today's his birthday. He's 74 today. Recently on this podcast, it was a discussion about online newspaper subscriptions. Received a lot of comments, including some saying that I needed to support newspapers and not telling people how to avoid paying for them. So what's funny about that is I've been a newspaper columnist since 1990. So I'm sure any paper that airs me is not happy about that conversation we had recently on the podcast either. Well, recently I read about how a lot of things that we were getting free now are costing us money in the world of tech. And that's where the whole idea of getting everything for free came from was the technology industry that did the freemium business models on everything. I'm going to talk about that first. And later, financial literacy is something that people talk about a lot, but it's hard to get the message through as people are trying to make sure that this generation grows up through school understanding the basics of personal finance. And it takes some special things to get the lessons to stick. I want to talk about that. So technology industry used freemium business models is the way to get people to sample a service instead of so heavily having to advertise it to get people to buy the service. And this is how it's worked for the last 20 years is you'd sign up for something for free, no credit card necessary, and you'd use it for free, and then they'd always be pitching you for a paid version. I, on my watch, have an app that I use. I use the free version, and whoever owns the app has decided, I gotta, gotta, gotta now pay for it. And so they give me this free trial for one day of the more expensive version, which I didn't ask for. And then my watch is frozen. I can't use that app anymore. So now I'm on another app for my watch. And it's kind of an awkward thing. And when somebody's used to having something for free and it's not free anymore, well, gets pretty upsetting for people. And Fast Company did a story about all these well-known and recognized companies that are now charging for things that used to be free. Zoom with much more restricted uses. MailChimp under their new owners has restricted a lot what's available to people, reducing basically what's available to you by 75% at its free tier. Amazon in so many product categories has taken away freebies that were available to you and restricted things. Peacock discontinued its free streaming version, which is interesting because it's in the midst of so many other streaming services now offering free ad-supported tiers. And it goes on and on, companies that are both well-known and those that are not. So what's going on here? Well, for a long time, we were in the land grab phase of technology where people were trying to stake their claim 
and build market share and then own a segment of the technology market by own meaning dominating that. Well, now the investors are like, wait a minute, you've never made a penny on this product in all these years. We got to see some return on our money. So now you're trying to wean people off things that were free to the end user and people are like, what? You want me to pay? And one of the areas we addressed before is how retroactively some of the uh, security cameras people have suddenly stopped working where people had a security license for life and they said, yeah, you don't have it anymore. And that ended up being reversed because, well, you know, those terms of service, that was a violation. One time terms of service actually benefited people, but know that basically the unofficial contract we've had with the technology industry for an entire generation is ending. And we're going to have to make decisions when we buy something, do we want to pay for it ongoing? I talked about my watch, that more and more you're going to find technology that the technology only functions if you pay for an ongoing subscription. I wear the Aura Ring fitness and health tracker, which is a phenomenal thing to improve my sleep a whole lot. It tracks my health every single day, gives me a health score, and it's so ridiculously accurate, I can't believe it. So Aura now no longer, used to be you bought the ring and you had tech support forever. Well, now if you buy it, you buy the ring and it only works if you pay for ongoing a technology subscription ongoing. And I'm sure they keep waiting for those of us who have the Aura Ring when it was free to have our Aura die or decide we need an upgrade to a new version so that we then will be handcuffed just like other people. And I'm going to wear this one <laughs> as long as I can because as much as I love the Aura, I already paid for the ring. I don't want to then have to pay the monthly subscription, but that's obviously where so much of the technology industry is going. Okay, Mary in Wisconsin wrote in saying, I've had a Visa rewards card for years. I received a letter from the bank letting me know I'd be receiving a new card with better benefits, etc. When I received it, it's now a MasterCard. I called and asked if I can have my Visa back, and they said no. Can they just do that? Uh, who's the issuer, by the way? This one's U.S. Bank. Which is, if I remember, they're the fifth largest bank in the United States. So what will happen is a bank will, behind the scenes, be negotiating whether they're going to be with Visa or MasterCard. And they'll do these switches, and you are just an innocent bystander. You're not even considered. In this case, U.S. Bank almost certainly got an undisclosed wonderful benefit dumping Visa and going to MasterCard. And you're just along for the ride. And under the law, as it's been interpreted, it is not considered to be a significant change by the feds when an issuer switches from one to another. Or even the question we had a lot in prior years was when gas station credit cards that were only usable at the gas station or a retailer card that was only usable at that retailer then sends you a new and improved card that has a Visa or MasterCard logo on it, 
that is not considered to be a change that they need your approval for. Remember when Costco went from Amex to Visa? I do remember. And I, man, (laughs) the number of people we heard from on that. And the other thing we've heard from Citibank issues, the Costco Visa card and has repeatedly reduced the benefits on that card. And I'm sure that's infuriating to the people who are the executives at Costco who made the decision to switch from American Express to Citibank. But the key things, the the level of cash back you get is still solid, but it's not as good a card as it was. Ray in Hawaii says, Aloha, I follow your recommendation regarding insurance coverage for rental cars. At the counter in the Las Vegas International Airport, I declined additional coverage. The agent pointed out that they were a local franchise and not corporate, then sternly warned of potential risk in case of an accident due to that status. I would need to return to Las Vegas if something happened and not be assisted by other rental offices. I still declined. Aside from that, their customer service was excellent. What sort of risks could they be referring to? And does this happen in other areas or airports? Mahalo. Ray, this was just the strong arm. You know, the people at the counter, maybe in order to keep their job or in order to earn commissions, can be at times uh, deceptive, aggressive, tough to deal with, because they earn so much additional pay by getting you to sign up for all the crummy, fake, pseudo-insurance products that the car rental company is selling. So uh, this has been a problem forever. So as long as you've got your ducks in a row, you know that you're covered for temporary use of a rental car by your own auto insurance that you have back in Hawaii. As long as uh, you especially have secondary coverage from one of the credit cards you use, as long as you use it for the rental car and decline all the coverages offered by the car rental agency, you're good to go. And don't let anybody do that intimidation routine on you. David in Alabama says, our HVAC paid service plans worth the cost. I received a quote of $16 a month fee for two inspections and preventative maintenance services annually. So we're talking about right at just under $200 a year. It gets hot in Alabama. Yeah. So it's not just a question of getting the two. You're prepaying for two service visits over the course of a year, Uh, typically spring and then fall as you cut over from being principally air conditioning oriented to principally heat oriented. So you're prepaying for that, but that's not why I do it. Okay, there's a couple of reasons why these service plans actually are different than other stuff you hear me talk about. You need to do seasonal maintenance on your heating and air conditioning system. And so when you are in one of these plans, they're going to call you because they want renewals. They're going to call you and schedule with you your spring and fall inspections. If you are left on your own and you're not signed up with any plan, you're the one who has to remember to sign up for them. But that's not the main reason to do it because some people are very fastidious. They're very clear and they write everything down and they would not miss scheduling to have uh, regular maintenance done to their heating and air conditioning. It's with a lot of these, there's a bribe that comes with them. 
it's the availability of service to you with a guarantee because you don't want to be there freezing in the winter or boiling hot sweating in the summer that usually when you sign up for these there will be a written service guarantee that they will be there within x number of hours and so uh, the cost of it is not exceedingly high for something you're basically prepaying for a visit you need to have anyway and if it comes with the service standard then that's awesome so i think it's fine for you to pay for that do you do it or not do it at your house you know we haven't been doing it but i think we should do it again when's the last time you had somebody come check your system well we had we've had issues just a few months ago but i do think it's good to do this regular plan and this isn't this isn't an automatic this is a gray area and you you're doing fine not doing it i know how flaky i am i would never remember to call and have them do it and so them saying, hey, Clark, it's time to set up your appointment. It works for me. It's good for you to do the other. Uh, actually, no, I think it makes sense for us because I don't, I don't my, like we never do the regular maintenance. We've just you had don't? some issues. No, I mean, my husband buys air filters. And so he does it himself. Happens, he'll just change out the air filter. But there's other things to it. How impressive that <laughs> you have a husband that can do maintenance around the house. <laughs> Lane wishes she had that with me. Ah, uh, well. Coming up ahead, there's more and more recognition that we want people to understand personal finance before money starts flowing into their wallets and out of their lives for expenses. How do you make those programs actually work for people? I have some suggestions straight ahead. I'm really, really excited that more and more people are focusing on how to make sure that teenagers have basic understandings about money. Often, though, the programs will be that a school offers simulated stock investing. That's not where I want the concentration to be as I think about the questions people ask me of all different levels of sophistication about investing. It's the basics, the blocking and tackling if you will, of how money works in life. And it's fantastic that more and more school systems and states are requiring a personal finance curriculum for their students. But it's not enough for the school to have that curriculum. It's really something you and I have a responsibility to do. And in most families, truth be told, Parents never, never talk to their kids about money. It's considered to be uncouth, uncool, or uncomfortable. But it's absolutely invaluable. But there's no such thing as a talk. Parents would like to think that works with the birds and the bees. It doesn't. It's an ongoing conversation. As uncomfortable as that may be to talk about interpersonal relationships, but I think people find it even more uncomfortable to talk to their kids about how credit cards work, how a vehicle loan works. And yes, it can be about how investing works. But I think you start with something more basic that you can talk about even with an elementary school kid. And that's the whole idea of living on less than what you make. 
if there's any message that I would want you to communicate continually to your kid or kids or a niece or nephew or whatever is the idea of living on less than what you make is key to personal happiness, reduction in anxiety in their lives, and more freedom in their lives. Everything I talk about, if you think about it, it's just details. But it all starts with a mentality. It all starts with this idea that I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. What a terrible treadmill to be on. So much better if it's all about the message that let's talk about how you live on less than what you make. And if you start with that and then you build like a Christmas tree with ornaments, that concept is the tree. The ornaments are the individual things you do. Where should that money go that you're not spending and instead you're saving? How do you build a basic budget of expenses? And there are events in a teenager's life that are great teaching moments. When your teenager has his or her first job, when your teenager is saving up for some purchase they want to make of a gaming console or whatever it is, when a teenager is getting a driver's license and becomes interested potentially in having a vehicle, each of these things form a basis of having a reason to talk with your kid about these kind of things. So the teaching is relevant. The conversations are motivational because it is part of that teenager's active life at that moment. And expecting the schools just to do it. Schools can teach, this is how you write a check. This is how you do this, that, and the other. But the underlying philosophy needs to come from you. I have discovered over the years that a lot of times the reason parents avoid a conversation with their kids about money is they may be embarrassed about how the parent may have handled money in his or her life. And you can actually use that as a teaching tool. These are the mistakes I made. A kid hears that. Let me tell you, you tell your kid, you know what? I didn't do that right. The kid's all ears. Wait a minute. My parent is saying, you know, I I didn't do this right. What didn't you do right? And they're all with you. So it's great that the schools are doing a curriculum in more and more districts and more and more states. But it's up to you to make that work for that kid long term. So they build good habits in your school instead of the school of hard knocks where most people learn the oops they've done with money. Let me ask you, what is your opinion about telling kids like how much money you make and disclosing things like that? You know, this has been such a societal conversation right now because some states have laws that require, there are a lot of people who work in jobs like someone who's in the military. Everybody pretty much knows what everybody of every rank makes. Mm -hmm. So in a case, if you're in a job where it's pretty clear what you make, I think it's fine to say, let me tell you, you can look it up. 
this is what I make as a an E4 or an O3 or whatever military rank, or I'm a GS this, or I'm this in the state, or whatever it is. Or I, you know, I live in a state where the pay rates are published. Mm -hmm. So there they are. And here's what I pay in taxes. This is what, yeah. Yeah. I pay taxes. I put this in a retirement account. I've got this debt I got to deal with. The mortgage is this. And it's not designed to overwhelm your kid. But if you lay stuff out like that, gosh, it's all relevant and it makes sense. And it's like, wow, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do the other. And it's not just a mindless exercise. It's real life. And so if you will open yourself up and create some vulnerability there, you'll really be able to be a benefit to your child. I love telling my kids, and I've got two adult children and one teenager, I love telling them my mess-ups financially. I like telling my kids my mess-ups with everything. Oh. I just, I think it's good for them so you're not holding yourself up as a flawless person you know we all make mistakes and- oh my family knows i'm not flawless well we they none have a of lot us- of fun making fun of my uh shortcomings no but none of us none of us is for sure but i think i totally agree with that you know you learn by you know you have we all have to be honest so all right we'll go to questions now mike in wisconsin my mother is residing in an assisted living facility due to needing around the clock care She had a stroke, which affects her mobility, and she has Parkinson's disease. She has upper dentures, which were removed from her mouth by one of the workers at the facility. They were misplaced by an employee, which the facility admitted to doing, and they are refusing to pay for replacement upper dentures. My question is based on their admission and my mother's inability to remove them on her own. She can't even push the wrist pendant when she needs to go to the bathroom. So sorry, that is so sad. Are they liable or are we out of luck and need to pay for replacement of her top dentures? Mike, gosh, uh, they are the caregivers to her. It's classy that the facility admitted responsibility. It is disturbing to me. They won't take financial responsibility for it. And I would check the contract. I mean, there's a contract that she's under for the assisted living facility. And it's going to take a while to dig through, but they may have a clause where they're not responsible. Or if it's silent on it, then you have a very clear right to seek compensation to replace those dentures. They're very expensive. Gosh, it's that's a terrible circumstance. I'm really sorry that happened. Now, in the state, you're in, which is the state of Wisconsin, there may be an oversight body that you can reach out to, and there certainly will be nonprofit aging organizations you can talk to and get guidance and advice on this. Uh, the state might be able to compel the facility to take care of it, but you don't want to be in an adversarial relationship with the care facility, and that's why I talk with a senior organization near you in Wisconsin and get advice and guidance from them. It's the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. It would be a question if they only oversee licensed skilled nursing facilities or if they also oversee assisted living facilities. Janet in Georgia says, I set up a New York 529 plan for our daughter in 2004 and accidentally named myself as the beneficiary. 
I am intrigued by the new rollover to Roth option. Would there be any benefit to keeping $35,000 in that account and put the remaining in another 529 account and pay for her college and then next year start moving the $35,000 to my Roth IRA? We are old parents and have fully funded retirement and college savings. Thanks to you. Janet, thank you. I know they're going to come. We don't have the regulations yet that I've been able to find on how this is going to implement in January of 24. If you're not aware, the states that run 529 plans were worried that one of the big objections that parents had about putting money in 529 accounts is that they might find the kid didn't go to college and they got that money that's subject to tax and penalty or the kid may scholarship out and then they don't have the penalty, but they've got the tax and all that. And so the Congress came up with an ingenious thing which allows you to fund a 529 plan and up to 35000 can be phased into tax and penalty free into a Roth IRA. We don't know how that's going to work yet. We don't know if you, as a parent, having named yourself as beneficiary, if you'll be eligible to do that yet. So this is one you just got to wait till probably late this fall, potentially, till the regulations are written and it's clear how this conversion program from 529 to Roth IRA is going to work and whether a parent naming him or herself as a beneficiary is eligible for this. And Kevin in Rhode Island says, my daughter just graduated from college and is interviewing for a job in Manhattan. She and her boyfriend are looking for apartments and they will need a guarantor as she does not yet have a job and her boyfriend is still in college. I was floored when I was told the guarantor was required to have an income of 80 times the monthly rent. Even though I can cover 55 years of rent, not that I want to or will, my income does not come close to meeting the 80 times requirement. Is this practice discriminatory? Yes, it is discriminatory, Kevin. And it's common in the New York rental market where the average monthly rent on a one-bedroom apartment in the city is over $4,000 and in Manhattan is over $5,000 a month based on the data I've seen. Wow. And the management companies and or landlords typically require one of two things, either the assets that show clearly you can support the rent or the 80 times income, which is 80 times the monthly rent and income. And what you're saying is it was not an either or, it was only one thing. So Kevin, she may need to look at another apartment with a different management company that does the either or that allows either the income or investments, proven investments, that will demonstrate the ability to afford the rent. And You know, the landlord, the market is so tilted towards the landlords in New York, the demand is so intensely strong that landlords make these crazy demands. Now, the other thing you could do since you have so much available and assets, you could offer to prepay several months rent, which may get them to waive the income requirement that they're asking of you. But most likely it may require 
a different management company that doesn't solely look at current income to establish eligibility for the apartment. What a crazy thing that you went to college in Boston, Mm -hmm. which is another extremely tight rental market, and you have a daughter Oh, yeah. Actually, my Boston. daughter is living off campus uh, this coming year. Are so you having to do oh, I signed, proof of income requirements yes. or just sign a guarantee? We did that, yeah, months and months ago for for this fall through a realtor. You have, we use a realtor and um, she's rooming with... You had to with, pay them a fee. Yeah, then oh, a whole month's rent. rent um, but yeah. she's rooming with four other girls. And, and did you have to demonstrate 80 times income in Boston? It wasn't 80 times, no, but they wanted all of our information. We sent them a tax return. <laughs> I mean, it was intense for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know... Most of us as normal earthlings in the rest of the United States cannot imagine what it's like in portions of the Northeast corridor for people to try to rent a place. And I said that so casually. The average (laughs) one-bedroom rent in New York City is over $4,000 a month and in Manhattan over $5,000 a month for one bedroom. And the one-bedrooms are dumpy and they're tiny and they're that much money really different market than the rest of America. Well, with that, you'll feel a whole lot better about the (laughs) cost of housing wherever you live in the United States, because it's probably not as bad other than Hawaii, probably not as bad as what people experience in New York and Boston. They have an absolutely wonderful rest of your day. And remember this, what are we about? Remember I was just talking about The thing to teach your kids, live on less than what you make through your entire working lifetime, save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off.